Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Do I have a soulmate? Interestingly, the idea of a soulmate goes back pretty far. According to Greek mythology, when humanity first existed, it looked very different than it does today. Each person had eight limbs, four legs, and four arms. They also had two heads, and every human also had both female and male genitalia. These unusual humans were clever, strong, wise, and began to see themselves as rival for the gods. So the Greek gods, led by Zeus, began to get nervous, and they said to themselves, these humans are a real threat, and they may very well usurp us as gods and replace us with themselves. So Zeus devised a plan. As punishment for the hubris of humanity, Zeus suggested every human be split in half, forming two new people, one male and one female. This would accomplish a couple of things. First, it would weaken humanity to the point that they were no longer a threat. Second, it would immediately double the number of humans, which would double the number of people available to pay homage to the gods. Finally, as punishment, it would doom the humans to spend their lives in search. The male and the female who'd been split from one form were doomed to spend their lives in search of each other in search for the one perfect partner, their soulmate. But the truth is, this idea of soulmate really didn't get much traction past Greek mythology until much later. For much of the history of the Western world, marriage was not an institution sparked by love or affection. It was an economic or political agreement between two families. Two families who lived, say, next to each other and both owned property would often see the wisdom of merging their two tracts of land into one through the contract of marriage. Kingdoms would forge alliances by agreeing to have two of their royal offspring marry each other. And there was little care nor interest if the man and the woman entering into this agreement were in love or not. Generally, for much of our human history, affection was something that would come after marriage not the basis for establishing a relationship. Beginning in the late 1700s, a new movement developed, and this was the beginning of the Romantic Era. The Romantic Era was largely a reaction to the societal changes experienced from the Industrial Revolution, and it emphasized the past, nature, individualism, and feelings or passion. And the combination of individualism and passion are really what helped launch the idea of romantic love. In the past, marriage, as I said, was a contract. Nobody expected a marriage to be without affectionate love, but that was something you grew into. It was not the purpose of the marriage. As romanticism took root in our society, a new vision also took root. It was the romantic ideal of marriage. This ideal believed that the excitement, emotional and passion of a newly formed dating relationship could be sustained forever if you just found that one right person for you in the world. And so we revived the idea of a soulmate. We once again 
have the beautiful, if somewhat tragic, idea that we are to spend our lives in search of the one person who will perfectly fit with our desires, our needs, and cause us to live in everlasting bliss. So what does the Bible say about love? Well, let's take perhaps the most cited verse in all of the New Testament. And even if you know absolutely nothing about Scripture, if you've never opened the Bible, if you have ever watched a sporting event, you've probably seen someone hold up a sign that says, John 3.16. The reason for the popularity of this passage is that it is a wonderfully short synopsis of the basis of the Christian faith. And it says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I want to draw your attention to the word loved. In this passage, and in many scripture references where God is described as loving humanity, love is not so much an internal state of feeling, but a decision to commit to the relationship. In the Old Testament, God's love is seen not through warm and squishy feelings of affection, but seen in the commitment to humanity through a covenant. The New Testament is much the same. God's love is seen through God's commitment to humanity. Scripture portrays love as a decision to commit and then faithfully living into that decision rather than the romantic ideal of an internal passion. First of all, if you can't tell by now, I do not believe that we have a soulmate who is our destiny to find. First, what if you're unlucky enough to have your soulmate born in Tibet and you're born in Nebraska? Second, I think this romantic ideal of love and marriage is problematic for the success of marriages. It causes us to wonder, the moment marriage gets a little less exciting, have I made a mistake in my choosing? Have I found the wrong person? If I had chosen the right person, there would be no downtimes, only joy. And that's not the way real relationships work. We know that. But, and here's where I think it gets really interesting. This romantic ideal of finding your soulmate is about so much more than the romantic bond between two people. It permeates many other aspects of our lives. It even seeps into our theology and affects how we interact with God. Over the years, I've counseled countless people who've caught in this romantic ideal of a divinely ordained life plan for them. Someone comes into my office and is trying to discern which of three jobs to take. The person will say, I know God has a plan for me, and I don't want to pick the wrong job because I don't want to pick the one that wasn't selected by God as the perfect one. This divinely ordained life plan is just the search for a soulmate that isn't a person. It's a series of life choices. First of all, let me say this doesn't sound at all like God to me. What parent would say to their child who's graduating from high school and excited about going to college, hey, Guess what? I've got great news. You've been accepted to go to a wonderful college that is perfect for you. But I'm not going to tell you what the name is or where it is. I want you to get in the car and start driving to school and see if you can discern the one and only correct choice as you come to every intersection along your journey. Golly, I hope you make it. It's really a great school. No parent would do this 
At least, I certainly hope not. So why does our theology believe God would? Interestingly, this I have to discern God's perfect choice for me at every juncture is more cultural than it is biblically theological. There are lots of places in the gospel in which Jesus sends out his disciples and tells them to go preach. And he gives them really specific directions. He tells them how much money to take, what to wear, where to stay, how to handle it if they're not well received, but at no point ever does he tell them there is one and only one plan and that they have the job of discerning it. Matter of fact, his charge assumes that they will make some choices that lead to less than desirable outcomes. They will occasionally stay with people who are not receptive of their message, and he tells them how to handle that. They are to move on. The Gospel of Matthew 10.14, he tells them, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Now, I know some who interpret this passage as some symbolic act of bringing shame upon the place they are leaving, but I understand the words, the dust on your feet, as wonderfully symbolic. The reality and memory that you weren't successful in that place should not be something that soils your trip. Take that emotional dirt and shake it off. Leave it behind and begin anew. And that's not words from a God who believes there is only one perfect plan. That's counsel from a God who's giving advice on how to make adjustments along the way. I believe that life is not about finding the perfect decision and then all your troubles will go away. You cannot find a single example in Scripture of a person who, in trying to be faithful to God, found that all of his or her life was smooth sailing afterwards. We aren't in search of the perfect spouse, the perfect school, the perfect job. None of those exist. The journey is not about making the perfect decision. The journey is about what you make of your life after you've made the decision. I have something I frequently remind myself of that's part of my personal theology, and it helps me at times be more spiritually present in my own life and not wind up looking down the road waiting for something else to come. And perhaps you'll find it to be helpful as well. Everywhere our lives take us, there is something we can learn, and there's an opportunity to serve This is not about there being only one learning or serving opportunity. There will be many. But if we, in every aspect of our lives, look for an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to serve, we will find we are probably much better at being faithfully present in the moment and certainly better at being the children of God we were created to be. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey... May you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Please feel free to get in touch with me through email or Twitter. Just remember, both are SkyPilot with three T's, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. That's SkyPilot at gmail.com, or Twitter is at SkyPilot. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, 
The sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.